This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, I'm Kat Sarfus, forever bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today we are joined by the brilliant Samantha Shannon. Samantha is the best-selling author of the Bone Season series, The Prior of the Orange Tree and A Day of Fallen Night. A writer of epic fantasy and dystopian fiction, her works have been translated into 26 languages. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh no, thank you so much for having me. It's always really fun to do podcasts. Lovely. So I have to start with this overwhelming amount of love you see for Priory of the Orange Tree across social media, particularly TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, I think my favorite reviews are those that say this book has reignited their love for high fantasy and that they could have read another 800 pages, which just kind of blows my mind. What has this sort of, this explosion, this sort of heartfelt fandom meant to you? It's been absolutely incredible and it's been quite overwhelming. I didn't really understand what was happening at first because, you know, my <laughs> my, my bone season series was, was you know, ticking along nicely. It's always uh-huh. had like a, a decent readership. And when I wrote The Priory of the Orange Tree, to be honest, I was worried it was going to be a little niche um, because <laughs> mostly because of the the size of it I remember I was having a conversation with my my grandmother um, who died in 2019 but she was my biggest fan while she was oh. alive and she, she was very sweet she said to me um Samantha is anyone really going to want to read an 800 page book about dragons and lesbians <laughs> like so earnestly and she obviously thought this was a very niche thing to have written about yes I said well I, I hope so grandma and then um it became a New York Times bestseller which was lovely and she said well okay obviously people do want to read about dragons and lesbians I, I was wrong at first again I didn't really understand what was happening because suddenly it seemed to have a lot of readers and I was getting tagged in a lot of things and the sales were going up and it was just I I'd never really experienced such a meteoric rise for a book before. I traced it eventually to TikTok and I realised that there was all this conversation about Priory on there and it was just so lovely to see that kind of hunger for sapphic fiction, first of all. And just, yeah, it was just really lovely to see people taking on the challenge of this massive book because, you know, I was worried that the size of it could be off-putting and I know it is intimidating, understandably so. But yeah, to see so many people taking it on and, and enjoying it has been absolutely amazing. I mean, I will say, you know, when I came to this book, it was sort of like early on in the book talk craze. And I do remember thinking to myself, if there's that much love for a book like this, again, you know, sapphic, dragons, epic fantasy that like, okay, this TikTok thing, it might not be so bad. I'm going to check it out. It really was. It was really the fact that these were the kinds of books that were being devoured and talked about that initially kind of piqued my interest to look into, to see like, what's going on? What are people really saying? What's this book talk? And now, I mean, obviously that seems so far away and, and everything, you know, this, this sort of explosion of power these sort of TikTokers and book talkers have and, and how they talk about books, which is just endlessly fascinating and just so wonderful. When I think back to how, when I was younger, exchanging our love of books and talking about our favorite authors, and it was so smaller and to see it on this grand stage is just really wonderful. But yes, more dragons, more sapphic fantasy. Absolutely. Yeah. More 800 page books. Bring it on. Yeah, it's really cool to see like a big sapphic community on on TikTok. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of loves for books like um, The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri and The Unbroken by C.L. Clark and like the sapphic trifecta. And it's just been really cool to see that. 
So Priory is a feminist reimagining of St. George and the dragon, among other things. Mm -hmm. You explore a lot of Eastern and Western folklore. I know you've spoken about how the countries in Priory are based on real countries and historical time periods. So what was your original inspiration in, in creating this world? Like, what was that spark for you? I wasn't initially intending to write anything outside my Bone Season series, mm. which is an ongoing yes. <laughs> epic dystopia. I was like, you have, a, you have an epic already. <laughs> Meant to have. And, it's, and I love the Bone Season so intensely. Um, but when I wrote the third one, I think most authors have had the book that just was really difficult for them. Mm-hmm. You know, every single author has had that book that I've spoken to. And for me, that book was the third book in the Bone Season series, which is called The Song Rising. And I was very conscious of having an audience at that time. When you write your debut, you're obviously writing it without the expectation of an audience. You're just writing it for yourself in some ways, and then you edit it so that for an agent or a publisher. But when I wrote The Song Rising, I was aware I had an audience waiting for the story to continue. So I I will admit I rushed the first draft and I sent it off to my editor. And then there was this dead silence. And it was, I thought, oh, I have really messed up. And indeed, I I had. um, I had written the song Rising as more of a bridge between the second and the fourth books. And I I did eventually manage to edit it into coherence. But it was it was definitely the most difficult installment of the series compared to the fourth one, which was just incredibly easy and lovely. But while it was with my editor, I'm a full time author. So I, I really needed something else to work on. I always need something to put my creativity into. I can't just take time off. I I needed to be working on some kind of writing project. So I thought, okay, I've always wanted to write a book about dragons. Um, I've loved dragons since I was a kid. I watched a movie called Dragonheart um, in Uh around 1996 when I was about six years old. I just fell in love with it. And I had this love of dragons ever since then. And I always wanted to find some interesting way to explore them. And I was raised in uh, Christian schools and St. George was quite a big part of my childhood because he's a patron saint of England, among other countries. I'm not sure how well known the legend is in America, but it's pretty much just a standard damsel in distress story. You know, a knight comes and saves a beautiful princess from a dragon and, you know, he saves the damsel and marries her. And that's the, the simplified version of the story that we're taught. You know, it's an example of heroism and selflessness and that kind of thing. And I decided that I would really like to reapproach this story because I felt like the damsel in distress narrative is one that deserved some, you know, modern interrogation. Yes. Um, it's been, done, <laughs> been done before, but I thought I could perhaps bring my own perspective to it. So I started to research the George and the Dragon legend. And the more I got into it, the more ugly and problematic I found the story and it it has I won't go into tons of detail because it would take me ages but I've written an essay on this called uh, Damsels Undistressed which you can find if you google that with my name which goes into detail about it but basically it's not a very nice story at its roots. Mm -hmm. One thing I found very interesting was that in a very early version of the story when St George goes to this country that is being tormented by a dragon you know the people are feeding their children to it their livestock they're, they're in a really bad state and St George says to them I will slay the dragon but only if you become baptized become Christian mm. and I felt that his heroism was conditional and I didn't love that <laughs> I read several different versions of the story and one that I found particularly problematic was from the late 16th century And it was written by uh, an Elizabethan author who basically said 
he, he wrote this incredibly long-winded epic called The Famous History of the Seven Champions of Christendom. And St. George is one of the characters. And the story contained some elements that I hadn't heard in the George narrative before. One of which was that when St. George fought the dragon, he did so underneath uh, an enchanted orange tree and it protected him from the dragon. There was also a character called Calib, who is an enchantress who gives St. George his sword before he goes on his journey and he then kills her. There were lots of elements that had been removed or pruned out of the basic sanitized version of the story that I had heard. And I decided to take this, all of the different versions I had read and interrogate them and deconstruct them and try to challenge them, I suppose, because I found so much in those stories that I didn't like. And that's where the initial seed of the Priory of the Orange Tree came from. And then I just had to keep building outwards. I'm not very good at writing uh, small stories. They always always become really big and ambitious. And I, I always just end up world building to the point that I build these enormous sprawling worlds. And so I was, you know, asking myself, okay, well, in this world, where do dragons come from? Why would an orange tree have been enchanted? Why would it have had magical properties? What kind of magic would an enchantress use? And I ended up creating this kind of dual magic system, which is a magic based on above and beneath. So there's a fire magic that comes from beneath the earth. And then there's a star magic that comes from the sky from a comet. And that was the basic duality I built the world on. And then there's two kinds of dragons, you know, one that comes from fire, one that comes from starlight. And yeah, that's how it all began, really. It just kind of kept growing from there. I love the rabbit hole that you go down. (laughs) Always, always, right? So obviously, I mean, hearing you speak and, and just, I mean, reading these books, you know that a lot of research kind of went into that world building. And it was interesting to hear you, you know, kind of uncovering some of these you know, unsavory bits. What was the most unexpected thing you discovered that did or didn't make it into the story while you were doing your research? Oh, that's an interesting question. I started writing Priory so long ago that there's some elements of the research process that I don't fully remember. So there's always interesting facts I discover. Like I can remember like the weirdest thing I found for the prequel, A Day of Fallen Night, which was I was researching Joan of Arc, actually, because she's one of the characters that I very loosely modeled one of the protagonists on. And I found out that one of her contemporaries suffered from this condition called the glass delusion. And it seems to have only affected sort of the European medieval nobility. And it was this really strong belief that they were made of glass and that they would literally shatter if they weren't really careful with themselves. And it got to the point that there was one um, noble uh, king And he wore like a special constructed cage, like just to stop his internal organs from shattering because he was so convinced they were made of glass. So that appears very briefly in a day of (laughs) night. (laughs) It's like the smallest throwaway line about a very minor character who believes that she's made of ice. And I just thought it went quite nicely with the world building. But that was like one of the random facts I discovered that just is just something I know now. I love that. I love that. There's always Mm. something that makes you like, what? How do more people not know this? This is a crazy thing. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So speaking of A Day of Fallen Night, the Pride of the Orange Tree has a a lot of history. Speaking of all your your research, there is Mm. a lot of history in there. So while it is a contained story, a prequel to sort of dive into all that rich history makes my brain very happy. And I think it will make a lot of readers very happy. When did you know Again, you're working on the Bone Season series and then you dip into this. When did you know you wanted to return to the world of the Priory? 
to return to Ines? And when did these stories sort of begin to form for A Day of Fallen Night? Well, I did originally set out to make Priory a standalone, and I really do mean that sincerely. But I remember <laughs> saying, I remember saying that to my agent, and he just gave me this look, and he was like, "It's not going to be a standalone." And I said, "It is. Like, I can't afford to take you know any more time off from the bone season. You know, I need to. I need to just write a standalone." He goes, "Yes, but I know you. Like with the bone season, it couldn't just be one book. It had to be seven books, didn't it? You, I know your imagination. You're going to dwell on this." And I was like, "Oh, okay, fine." And then eventually I had to go back to him with my tail between my legs. And I was like, um, so what if what if I wanted to sell another one? <laughs> so it was probably, I don't know, maybe about halfway through writing Priory because I had built, like you said, this really big history to the yeah. world. I really like my worlds to feel like they haven't just been constructed around these present characters. I want them to feel really lived in. So you you have a sense of what they used to be like and also what they might be like in the future. So that meant I I really wanted this to feel like an ancient world that had been there for a long time before this current crop of protagonists. And I created this event in the world's history called the Great Sorrow or the Grief of Ages, where there was basically a lot of worms, which are like fire-breathing dragons, came out of a mountain called the Dread Mount, and they pretty much destroyed the whole world. And as soon as I mentioned this in Priory, I thought, oh, that would be an interesting period to explore in a book. And there are some <laughs> characters mentioned who appeared during this time period. And as soon as I wrote them, I thought they would be interesting people, you know, to explore whose lives would be really fascinating to to go into more detail about in another book. So yeah, I think it was probably about halfway through Priory that I started to think about writing one that was set 500 years before. But it was definitely a little daunting to do it, especially because when Priory had gone out, a lot of readers seemed to connect really strongly to the characters. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I was going to write a prequel, obviously most of the main characters would not be able to appear because they haven't been born yet. So that was worrying I was just thinking you know are this are readers going to be able to connect with a new cast of characters or are they going to be sad that they're not seeing the same characters again and I was nervous when I started to write these characters you know I was I was like oh who are you I, why, why am I writing Eden Sabran um but I do this thing where I sort of it sounds a bit silly but I take my characters out for a coffee so what I'll do is when I have a new character in my head I will literally go to a coffee shop and just open a word document and sort of type out questions for them kind of like we're on a date <laughs> and I just managed to do that I took them all out for a date and by the time I walked away from the coffee date I was like okay I think I like these people I'm going to try writing from their perspective and the next thing I knew I had fallen completely in love with them and I was very very attached to them by the end so I really hope that readers will will love them as much as I do. So they all got a second date I would say it's safe oh, yeah, to, no, safe we're, to... <laughs> we're in a relationship now, now <laughs> three-year <cool>. relationship. <laughs> I love it. And I mean, I think that it's very interesting, you know, because I think to your point, yes, the readers, the characters, you know, there is that connection. You feel, you know, almost like this person is with you. But I think that a lot of it, you know, when you hear people talk about this book and sort of wax poetic about it, I think it is, is that world that they don't want to leave. Obviously, the characters that are in it are so important. I just think about the world and I think about how you've built it. But I feel like right away, you kind of build this history. That this is not just, yes, we're, we're, we're here in, in present day, but everything that's happening has been built on, you know, from the time before. So I think it's going to be so exciting. Now we have a series. Okay. So we, <laughs> we, yes, we had one. 
now we have a series, the Roots <laughs> of Chaos series. I think one of my favorite things is to talk about books and hearing people and what they have to say. What was the part that they took away from the book and, and what did they love the most? Hearing what the series has brought to so many readers. Um, and, and one of the things I think that is my favorite is what I mentioned earlier about how it's really brought readers back to or introduced new readers to high fantasy. And I know, I honestly don't know many people who don't love dragons, but let's be serious. Um, but what you've done here with um, queendoms and openly queer characters and storylines devoid of sexual violence is quite frankly refreshing in this space. Um, and for many who are sort of new to this space, they might not know some of these all these these sort of troops that have sort of defined high fantasy for, for quite some time. So how important was it to you to have such diverse representation in this, I mean, in high fantasy in general, but in this high fantasy? Yeah, I mean, it was important to me in a number of ways, um, especially the point about, that you make about sexual violence. I should, first of all, emphasize that I think that fantasy and books in general can be a really great place for authors to explore that and I think mm -hmm. that there should always be space for authors to be able to talk about that in whatever way that they see fit. I think the issue I was having was that I felt as a younger writer certainly that sexual violence and misogyny were almost expectations of the genre and that's mm -hmm. where I want to draw a distinction. I think that it's fine if authors want to explore that subject and I mm -hmm. think it's really important for them to be able to do so. But I do not think it should be an expectation of any genre um, or fiction as a whole. I think there needs to be a good variety of books where we do explore that, but also where we readers don't have to have that presented to them. You know, when I watch Game of Thrones, for example, you know, I, I always felt I had to sort of brace myself every episode for the misogyny. And, and again, it's fine. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to, to deal with it. I, I enjoyed the show. I also wanted readers to be able to have a space where they didn't have to, to see that, basically. And I think both of those are, are valid. So I decided that was going to be my approach for this particular series. The representation in general, in order to write an authentic retelling of George the Dragon that deconstructed the elements I didn't like about it, I felt it really needed to be a diverse story because the original story is, is not particularly tolerant. I really wanted it to be a celebration of diversity and working together in a way that I felt some versions of the story did not celebrate that. So yeah, it was it was important to me. I think I was I was also sort of discovering my own sexuality as I was writing it. I realized I was sapphic while writing The Priory of the Orange Tree. And <laughs> some people have, have said to me, Oh, I realized I was gay while I was reading it. And I was like, Oh, really? I realized I was gay while I was writing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That was really interesting and it was it was nice to be able to express that on the page and to explore that feeling I hadn't really explored before. I think diversity in general is is important in fiction. I, I feel like we're in a real golden age of fantasy that's exploring mm -hmm. diversity from lots of different perspectives and telling lots of stories that need to be heard at the moment. And I feel really honoured to be working within that space. I love that. you. It's like it is. It is. Uh, I haven't put a word to it, but it is kind of a a golden age of fantasy right now. I can't say how happy it makes me to see just not only diversity, but just women in the space sharing stories, whether it be reimaginings or, you know, wholly new worlds. It is, it is, it's a very exciting time. And as someone who has read fantasy for a very, very long time, and it was always my safe space, even as a child, you know, knowing all the books that I had to read and what was available to me you know, at that point in the 90s and the early aughts versus, you know, where we are now, I'm very jealous of, of, of new yeah. new readers. 
in the space and just sort of this embarrassment of riches that they have. So it's it's just really wonderful. Yeah, it is lovely. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to discount the work of early female writers who were working in the space. But yeah, it's, it's definitely nice to see just so many female writers now. Exactly. It feels like we're really part of a, a movement towards a more interesting fantasy landscape where more stories are being told. Yes. You know a fantasy is going to be epic when a book starts with multiple maps and yes. ends with several pages uh, describing families, family trees, players, um, as well as an entire glossary of terms. So at what point in your process are you calling in the cartographer? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I'm, I should really stress that I don't design the maps myself. I gave Bloomsbury a truly embarrassing map. In fact, I didn't even give it to Bloomsbury. I gave it to my agency and my agent's assistant at the time was a better artist than me. And so she drew it into something slightly more coherent. Um, I basically just sent some blobs on a page and kind of roughly divided them and just marked them with the name of each country. So yes, it's nothing to do with me. I mean, I sketched out a map relatively early in the process because I really needed to understand the geography of this world just for my own sake. Um, And then I think I just sent the kind of blobby map along with the manuscript to my agent. It's a funny piece of trivia, actually. The the map designer for the Roots of Chaos books is um, Emily Facchini, and she is the sister of Cressida Cowell, who wrote How to Train Your Dragon. So there's oh. a fun <laughs> dragon link there. That is a little fun fact for it. <laughs> yeah, no, she does a really fantastic job. She, I really like her illustration style. That's amazing. All the dragons, we're all connected. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really cool when I found that out. <laughs> Another thing, these epic fantasies, you've got your maps, you've got your glossary of terms. And then, of course, you know, as you're reading, you sort of have, and, and I find this with a lot of fantasy books, and I love to chat about this because I always think it's endlessly funny, there's the pronunciation. Is oh. that you, <laughs> I think that in your head, especially, you know, if you're not um, listening to the audiobook and you're and you're reading it, you know, you put ideas in your own head of, oh, this is how it's, uh, how it's said. And then, of course, you go online, you know, you try to, try to research and then see how you were wrong. But there are quite a few sort of unofficial pronunciation guides online for characters and (laughs) the countries and everything. Have you listened to any of them? Is there any thought into doing your own official Samantha Shannon, Roots of Chaos pronunciation guide? So I I have a bit of a thing about this. So, so many people have asked me for a pronunciation guide and I have been incredibly slowly (laughs) working on one. I have this bizarre dread that I cannot explain of putting it out there and then people being sad that their pronunciation was wrong. I don't want to make people sad. Um, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but I'd, it's just this kind of weird hang up I've had. Like, I will put one out. I am working on it. And it's interesting because apparently uh, the audiobook narrator for the book actually pronounces one of my characters' names in a way that I don't pronounce it. So even the audiobook can differ from the way the author says it. Um, Audible only asked me for some of the pronunciation, strangely. So obviously the audiobook narrator was left to you know her own devices otherwise. And I, I think that's completely fine. That's just one version of the story. It's not how I pronounce it, but that's that's totally fine. But yeah, I, I will at some point. I haven't listened to any of the other uh, pronunciation guides currently. I think what I'll do is I'll wait for a day of fall and night to come out and then I'll just do one big Roots of Chaos pronunciation <laughs> guide. But even when, even when I have to commit it to the audiobook, I, I just had to send over the uh, audible pronunciation guide for a day of fall and night because they're just about finished recording it now. Even I was like, oh, is that how the name should be pronounced? <laughs> 
I was like doubting myself because I had to actually commit to it. Obviously, when you write it, you don't have to commit to the pronunciation. But then I was like, oh, oh, goodness, like, is that correct? Is that the way it should be said? It's funny how you say that people sort of, you know, you have it in your head, just like how you visualize a character. You know, you have a sort of a visual of, of that character. And then, you know, sometimes there'll be an adaptation and, you know, the actor or whomever is, you know, you're like, that's not what I had in my head. And so it's so it's so funny to think that it's also, you know, these names and, and whatnot. But I will say there was a bit of satisfaction, you know, when I was kind of, of course, you know, going down the Google and rabbit hole and and looking up the pronunciation when I, it would match someone else's. It was like, ah, like a connection. Like, uh, yes, yeah. I was I was right. Yeah, the, I, the casting, the head casting thing is always really interesting as well. So at some point in the process, this is probably somehow my fault, but I think I miscommunicated to people a lot of people think that Sabran, um, who's the, the queen in the Prior of the Orange Tree, should be played by Katie McGrath. And I think I said at one point, yeah, she looks a bit like Sabran. And somehow that got passed along just, and just changed. <laughs> and now it's apparently Samantha Shannon based Sabran on Katie McGrath. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't, base, I didn't base the character on her. I just said she might be a good person to play her and she looks a bit like her it's just quite funny like that I tend I tend tend to not get involved in that kind of thing so I prefer readers to be free to imagine the characters for themselves yes and that's it that's the game of telephone that happens (laughs) I would see this and I'd be like did I say this I was like thinking like to myself did I actually say that at some point I know it's not true but I'm seeing people say it Yeah. And it's funny because I've heard other authors say similar things where like they've made that one, you know, they maybe casually mentioned the person or, you know, an actor or or, or some sort of figure that like, oh, this was, and then it takes on a life of their own, a life of its own. And they're kind of like, never again, (laughs) because it is, you know, there is something, you know, very personal when you're reading and how you're connecting. And I can't imagine, you know, when you're writing these and then, you know, you have your own kind of vision and then you sort of put it out in the world and to see all the different you know the other versions and the other pronunciations and the other of these characters so that's just like endlessly fascinating so we've got these maps we've got the glossary of terms and now I cannot not ask you about the cover design it's so iconic at this point and then also the fact that it's a wraparound I mean I kind of feel like it's just this like perfect package did you work in on the cover design did you have any ideas that you sort of put forward you're like, I'm gonna, I just want this to be as breathtaking as possible. So I did not have anything to do with the cover. Uh, Like I said, it is absolutely, I'm not an illustrator. I do not have any artistic talent whatsoever. (laughs) Um, I left that to Bloomsbury. So the, uh, the art director at Bloomsbury is a guy called David Mann, who has done all of my covers since the beginning of my career. And interesting, when, when they sent me the initial sketch, I was I was almost sceptical because I thought it was beautiful, but there was more of a trend at the time to more simplistic covers, like a kind yes. of a, a symbol on a plain background, like kind of something like more like George R. R. Martin's books. Yes, it would yes. be like quite, quite simple, just a, and when I saw this, it almost reminded me of like old kind of 80s fantasy in a way, mm-hmm. but I ended up coming around to it and because it was just so beautiful and the colors that they'd chosen was just amazing like that kind of beautiful sunset palette and I said okay let's go with this and I think the only piece of feedback I gave was that I thought the dragon was slightly tail heavy and possibly couldn't <laughs> fly with it he had he had this really kind of massive tail initially and I think and I don't that doesn't really look very like it would be airborne very easily so I think that was the only commentary I gave just slim the tail down a bit just on the aerodynamics of the yeah, aerodynamics <laughs> weren't really working for me visually. I don't know anything about aerodynamics. I think I was just trying to sound smart. 
but yes, yeah, so I, I didn't really have any feedback apart from that. And then, of course, it was incredibly well received. And so it's designed by David Mann, but the illustrations are done by Ivan Belikov, who specializes in like these beautiful, detailed drawings of mythological creatures. So if the, he has uh, Instagram and they're, they're all over there. They're stunning. And I really didn't think that they were going to be able to top the design for A Day of Fall and Night. But then when it came in, I was like, how have they made it even more stunning? Like the, the colours were amazing. I mean, I asked them if they could do a wraparound where the back had a volcano on it because, the, you know, the whole kind of mm-hmm. inciting event in A Day of Fallen Night is the eruption of this volcano called the Dreadmount. And I asked for that. And then I asked for the front to be more kind of stars and snow and ice, so kind of like polar opposites, essentially. And that's pretty much exactly what they did. And I think David kind of came up with the initial concept and then Ivan did the illustrations. And it's just, again, so stunning. I don't think, again, I don't think I had any feedback other than, can you add a little bit of snow on, there's like kind of like pine, pine branches on it. And I wanted them to have some snow because there's, you know, snow in the book. So just being quite just a basic feedback. But I love it. It's such an explosion of colour. It has this like really nice streak of hot pink on it. And I very rarely see hot pink on covers. <laughs> it just looks so nice. I love it so, so much. Yes. I'm actually looking at it right now. And as you were, as you were talking, I'm like, yep, there's the, there's the, oh, I am. There's, <laughs> there's the snow. The <laughs> I have it literally in my hand at this moment. <laughs> I was lucky to see it early on. The same thing where it's like, how do you top priority? Because I just think you don't judge a book by its cover, but really when you see something, I think people do. And when you see something like this, you have to, you kind of have to stop it. Even just, just what is this? And then to see the cover for the A Day of Fallen Night and to, again, whereas you you were saying the Priory has this sort of this beautiful sunset palette and then to see the Day of Fallen Night and it's, it's just, yeah, between like the, the, the blues of the, of the snow and the starlight and then these pinks and it's just, how it's done is just quite, quite breathtaking. It is really remarkable. I feel very, very lucky to have it because I, I am under no delusions that <laughs> a lot of the reason the book has been successful will be to do with the cover because it, it really it just looks like such a work of art. It's something that you just want to have on your bookshelf when you look at it. It's it's beautiful. So I feel really lucky both for Ivan and David and also for Emily for doing the maps inside. It's just really beautiful. You captured our imaginations with your vivid imagery and attention to detail with Priory. So then you take us back to unearth the history in a day of fallen night mm-hmm. what is next for the roots of chaos and I have to ask this question you can you know no spoilers or as, as much as you can tell us what's next well I'm very uh, happy to say that I have sold another book in the roots of chaos cycle which was really wonderful Bloomsbury have been very very supportive of the series all the way through and they were really delighted that I did want to write another one. I'm probably not going to be working on it for a few years. Each of the books, because of their size and their complexity, they take me about three years from start to finish. And I really need to consider my schedule carefully before I start one. So I'm going to be first of all finishing the fifth book in my Bone Season series. While that is with my editor, I'm going to be working on a book inspired by the Greek goddess Iris, which is going to be a standalone and after that, I will probably start work on the third Roots of Chaos book alongside the sixth Bone Season book, because I want to make sure I continue to get the Bone Season to my readers as pa- fast as possible, because people have been very patient waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been working on this series for a decade and it still isn't finished, but I'm, I'm a real perfectionist. Like, I love the Bone Season series so much that I really agonise over every instalment, just like I do with the Roots of Chaos books. Yeah, it is coming. I think I just need a, a 
breather from the door stoppers, but it is, it's in the process of being cooked in my mind. I love it. And I will say, I think fantasy readers are pretty forgiving when it comes to, you know, these epic series and, and when the books arrive. I hope so. I feel like you're, you've been pretty good uh, in comparison. <laughs> It started as a standalone for Roots of Chaos is now is now three. And then you had mentioned a possible standalone. Is it going to be a standalone for Iris? Um, I think so. Yes. Because, <laughs> I, 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 again, never, never say never in my Never case. say never. <laughs> I've definitely learned not to make any promises on this kind of thing. I, I do think this is different because it's, you know, it's just a straight sort of reimagining of the Iliad, really. So it's just, it's not, I don't think it's something I would continue. It's inspired by Iris. It's, it's going to be focused on uh, the women of the Iliad, particularly. Um, although I will also be looking at other events in Greek mythology. But I, I think I'm pretty sure that will be a standalone. I, I don't think I, I just really was fascinated by this particular goddess and there is a trend of kind of looking at historical and mythological women at the moment which I think is wonderful because it feels like we are really building a library of books about women's history and women's stories and sharing their perspectives and giving them richer stories than they had in the original and this I suppose is my contribution to that ongoing library that a lot of female authors are building together But yeah, Iris in particular just really interested me. I'm actually often more interested in minor goddesses and minor figures in mythology. And I I always found her appearances in the Iliad to be very interesting. So that'll just be my book exploring her character. But she is a pretty minor goddess, so I don't have a ton of material to work with, strangely. So I think it will just be a standalone. But that's, I mean, all the more to build. Exactly. More space to imagine. (laughs) And speaking of brilliant women, because I'm always looking for book recommendations from brilliant women, and I have you, I happen to uh, have you here. What are you reading now? Or what was the last book that you read that just, that you loved? Oh, I always get overwhelmed by book recommendations. I always want to recommend like 10 books. And so at the moment, I'm reading a book called Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea by Rita Chang. Yes. it's really stunning. It's about this um, Chinese pirate queen, and it's it's just just really wonderful. Again, it's kind of part of that movement towards telling women's stories from their perspective and just giving them like a richer narrative. And um, I'm doing an event with Rita for my tour when I come to California, so I'm really excited about that. As a few other books, I would recommend um, one of them is called The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri. It's a part of the so-called sapphic trifecta as it gets talked about on TikTok particularly. It's sort of an epic fantasy inspired by India and it's about two women who have to work together to take down an emperor uh, like a sort of a religious fanatic and they might just fall in love on the way. Um, It's one of my my favourite recent books and I love it so so much I recommend it all the time. Another one which was published last year is called Juniper and Thorn by Ava Reed, which is a gothic horror inspired by 19th century Ukraine and it's really really stunning. It's a very interesting examination of trauma and survival and it's incredibly romantic. Ava Reed writes the most wonderful love interests. Like I'm always so gripped by her love stories and I would really recommend it. It's just very dark and gritty and it's so beautifully written like that Ava's a wonderful writer and I will also comment that I'm you know all of those books that you mentioned of course I'm thinking of and I've been lucky enough to see the covers for the first one and it hasn't been published yet and they're all again just so striking books that you can't help but pick them up and then when you do you are just in for a treat 
I really love the illustrated covers that are coming out recently. And I just, I love the level of detail and also the sense of movement. I feel like a lot of covers, including A Day of Fall and Night, are very dynamic. They look like they're moving. And I, I just think that's great. Beautiful. Samantha, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you for the dragons, the magic, the epic adventures. This has been wonderful. A Day of Fall and Night, the prequel to The Priory of the Orange Tree is out now. Thank you so much for having me. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of A Day of Fallen Night. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy Madison. Hello. Hello, I'm Madison coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles. So we've got a couple of great books to talk about today. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with a book that was picked as January's Young Adult Book Club title. And that is Song of Silver, Flame Like Night by Amelie Wenzhou. This is a fantastic partnership with Samantha Shannon's writing. It follows a young woman whose people were overthrown, her mother was killed, and any remnants of her magical traditions and her people have been outlawed. So the only pieces that she has left of her past are a mysterious brand burned onto her arm and whatever sort of trinkets and relics that she can scavenge. But a chance encounter with a mysterious young man sets her on a quest to essentially overthrow an empire. This book is inspirational. It's beautifully written. It pulls from Chinese folklore and mythology in a really lovely way. It's just a great staple in this fantasy realm. And I think anybody who's looking for a good adventure will be absolutely satisfied and then some. Plus, it's the first in a series, so you can always come back for the sequels. And that is Song of Silver, Flame Like Night by Amelie Wenzhou. Madison, what do you have for us? Hello. Well, of course, when I was thinking of books to recommend, I got stuck on dragons. I just couldn't stop thinking about dragons. So I went the classic route from my childhood. I chose Aragon by Christopher Paulini, which follows Aragon. He is a farm boy who stumbles upon a blue stone. And the stone, he thinks it's going to feed his family. You know, they can put food on the table. But it turns out it's a dragon. So he starts forming this bond with his dragon, Sephira. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Fingers crossed. Um, and then chaos ensues. He comes home one day and he finds his home completely destroyed his family virtually gone. So he has to go on this quest of revenge and figure out who killed his family. And it happens to be that it was ordered by the king. So the king of the empire. So then it turns into this thing where he has to then overthrow the empire. And through this, he meets a slew of characters along the way. You'll find your favorite. You'll go through heartbreak. It's one of those beautifully written fantasies that will take you on an adventure, especially when you're young and a kid just wanting that first taste of fantasy. This is a great one to step into if you're not ready for Samantha Shannon's series. This is a great introduction to the world of dragons. And you get to meet some of the original dragon riders, which is why I chose it. So before Shannon's characters, before House of Dragons, there was Aragon. And I think that's where you need to start on your own dragon quest. Ah, fantastic. 
Well, that is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.